Second, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. The Apostle Peter is writing about their testimony to the gospel and he says this. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Lord, today as we consider the trustworthiness of your word, we pray that you would uh, move in our hearts by your spirit, Lord, to give us confidence in your word, not just so that we can be confident, but that we will entrust ourselves to its teaching more and more. So Lord, would you help us even now, Lord, to, to hear with ears of faith and to respond with hearts of obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're doing this uh, series this summer, Asking for a Friend, addressing the sort of questions that you may not admit that you have, but all of us really are thinking from time to time. And uh, in one way, the, the, the title, Asking for a Friend, really means two things. Sometimes when we, you know, when we ask questions, we'll say, you know, I'm not really asking for myself, I'm asking for a friend. You know, I don't, and we ask those questions that we almost don't want to have associated with us because they in some way say something about us that we don't really want said. And so, like, for example, today the question, why should I trust the Bible uh, that we're going to talk about sort of reveals a little bit of a question in our hearts. Like that maybe there's some doubts that we have or questions that we have or uncertainties we have about the trustworthiness of the Bible. So it's not often that people uh, as, as a pastor just come up to me and say, I don't believe the Bible or I don't trust my, why should I trust the Bible when we're around here in church? But I also know, and this is the second reason that we titled the series Asking for a Friend, is that beyond these walls in your day-to-day interactions, there are many people in your life who are definitely asking that question. Why should I trust the Bible? You keep wanting to talk to me about what the Bible says about something, and these friends that God has placed in our life, they need good answers from us. They need to hear from us the, the reason for the hope that God has placed in us. And so we are taking the next several weeks of the summer to not only ask those questions, but then to look inside of God's word, see the ways in which God's word helps point us to the answers that we need for these very questions. So the question today, we might phrase it, why should I trust the Bible? Or is there any reason to believe the Bible is God's word? Is the Bible special in any way in comparison to other books? 
So that's the question I want to answer. And, and so today, to do that, I'm going to do two things. Of course, we read the passage where uh, the Apostle Peter is, is helping us understand how we should think about what the Bible is testifying to about Jesus. But before we do that, I want to, I want to think a little bit from the things that are outside the Bible. Are there any indications that we should at first even think the Bible is trying to give us a historically accurate presentation of the events that it addresses? And so... Uh, for, for about three years of my life, I spent time in my graduate work getting a degree in what's called Christian apologetics, where we, where we address these kind of questions. And through that time, I often was struck by how much uh, scholarship and information is out there that answers these kind of questions that the average person in a church pew, or in our case, a potentially broken plastic chair, people have these kind of questions but have never heard some of the things that are obvious to someone who has spent the smallest amount of academic study thinking about them. And so I don't have time today to pack my entire graduate program into this sermon, but I have my Greatest Hits edition. And so I made a Greatest Hits mixtape of this, these five things that will help you see the reasons that I'm confident, and they point us in different ways to the trustworthiness of the Bible, the general historical trustworthiness and our confidence that we can have so that then we can lean into what Peter says here in this passage. So let's start with my greatest hits. Uh, here's, here's part of the greatest hits edition. Number one, the Dead Sea Scrolls confirmed the accurate transmission of the biblical text. If I were to talk about the, 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 my confidence in the Bible, one of the reasons, and not everything rests on these sort of things, but they contribute in a way to confidence. The first thing I would say is the Dead Sea Scrolls confirm the accurate transmission of the text. The Dead Sea Scrolls are a set of scrolls found in a series of caves near the western shore of the Dead Sea. Most of, raise your hand if you've ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah, lots of them. You've probably heard lots of good things and bad things about them. Um, they were found between the years 1946 and 1956, and they date to the time of Christ and the time before that. Their significance for us today is that in the scrolls, there's an entire copy of the book of Isaiah and the book of Psalms that predate Jesus. So we have copies that would have had the text that ultimately that Jesus would have read when he gets up in the synagogue at Capernaum and he reads from the Isaiah scroll. And so they've got... A copy of that. Prior to that, prior to that discovery in the 40s and 50s, the earliest Jewish manuscripts or Jewish copies of the Old Testament had been scribed, had been written down in 1000 AD. So there were questions like, did the text change from the time Jesus read them and said, this is the word of God and affirmed that text? Had it changed in the thousand years from then to what were called the Masoretic texts, which were a thousand years removed from the time period? And so they were able to take these scrolls and they were to put them, to, put them beside uh, one another and examine them and when compared the copy of Isaiah and Psalms confirmed the fact that the text of the Old Testament had been faithfully preserved all that time in essence the Old Testament that Jesus read was the Old Testament that we read the Old Testament that Jesus called the Word of God 
So the Dead Sea Scrolls confirmed the accurate transmission. When we talk about transmission, we're talking about how a text travels from original and is preserved and kept so it can be read accurately later. And and so that means that any time that somebody says to you, oh, the Bible's changed so much over the years, you can go to the Dead Sea Scrolls and you can say, a thousand years went by and Isaiah really had not changed at all. So that's one reason that I trust what we have in the Bible. Number two... The inscription of Lysanias and Abila highlighted the historical precision of the biblical text. So we know it's preserved, but let's ask the question a little bit like, uh, when it talks about history, does it get things right? Well, one example of that, in Luke chapter 3, verse 1, uh, as Luke sets out the events, go to that next slide. I know it's small, but you could probably see it a little bit uh, if you're in the front five rows, which I would really encourage you to sit there. In Luke 3, 1... Luke sets the events of Jesus' life and the ministry of John the Baptist in the place that he mentions. He puts it in the time of certain political leaders and, um, and, and really sets up through that a, a test of historicity. He say, says it this way. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, okay, that's one historical person, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, that's another one, Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, the tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene. He names all these political people in their time period, they're ruling when they're supposed to rule. During the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. He sets Jesus' ministry in that historical time with all those markers. Well, for many years, liberal scholars believed Luke had gotten the reference to Lysanias, the Tetrarch of Abilene, wrong. Because the only other known Lysanias had been from a period of time about 36 BC. So they said, well, Luke somehow just grabbed this out of thin air and he just got it wrong. Uh, Well, that was the case until an inscription in a temple was found in Abila that dated to the period Luke is talking about that made a clear reference to Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abila. Now, does that prove everything in the Bible is historical? No, I'm telling you, this is the greatest hits, remember? Uh, this one, though, reminded me that, that Luke, when we're talking about the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, if we take that portion and just examine it, that Luke over and over and over again gets history right. In all, Luke names countries and cities and towns and languages, political figures, important historical fe- events, all with the right description and nuance of someone who was there during the time. He is a reference point for historical studies of the time period because of his accuracy. Now, there are many other archaeological discoveries that have continued to affirm the basic historicity of the references in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, to the point that any question that remains would require the benefit of doubt to lean toward the Bible rather than the shifting wings, winds of skeptical scholarship. There's historical precision in the Bible. Number three in the greatest hits The Rylands papyri reminds us of the early production of the Gospels. Now, what is the Rylands papyri? Well, you got to understand that when people were, when they were copying down documents in that time, they this time period, they copied them on papyrus. These were sort of paper that was made and pressed and, and, and then ink was written upon. And so these papyri then often were rolled up and stored in different places. And over the years, many of them have been discovered at, at different times. Well, the Rylands papyri is the oldest surviving fragment of a copy of the Gospel of John. And it's dated to as early as 125 A.D. 
125 AD. So you're thinking, you know, 90 years after Jesus was born, something in the 50-ish years after the Gospel of John is written, we have this copy. We have a physical copy of one of the documents. The papyri were purchased in Egypt where it likely circulated in the early 2nd century. So early 100s, this document is not in Ephesus where it was written. It's already traveled all the way over to Egypt. Remember, no planes, trains, and automobiles. And it's in Egypt in a way that it would have been circulating. Now why why in the world would some document be circulating unless it was special? Unless it was already recognized as being something that really mattered. So this is why it matters, because by the second century, the Gospel of John was not just written, it had been written and copied and considered important enough for copies to be widely distributed as far from Ephesus as Egypt throughout the Nile Basin. It's a confirmation that the Gospels, which claim to be biographical presentations of Jesus and not legends, were in fact written and circulating far before legendary development would have been able to creep in. Famous Princeton textual scholar Bruce Metzger wrote about this. He said, Just as Robinson Crusoe, seeing but a single footprint in the sand, concluded that another human being with two feet was present on the island with him, so the Rylands papyri proves the existence and use of John's gospel during the first half of the second century in a provincial town along the Nile, far removed from its traditional place of composition. My fourth in the greatest hits mixtape is the sermons of origin in 250 AD demonstrate the prompt recognition of the New Testament. Now why does that matter? Prompt recognition of the New Testament. Well, there's a very popular myth made particularly popular by Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code. Anybody ever heard of The Da Vinci Code? Remember when that was like all the rage for a while? Well, it was all the rage because it really just fed people's skepticism so they could loosen themselves from the teaching of Scripture. That was one of the big reasons that it was popular. But it wasn't accurate. Um, Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code claimed that there was some sort of conspiracy competition about which books got into the Bible and which books were kept out of the Bible. This was one of the big things that he, that he talked about in there. Um, most of the time, the case is made like this, that the, the Council of Nicaea in the 4th century made up a list of books that the Emperor Constantine had political motivations to include. And the suggestion is made that, that you shouldn't trust the New Testament and instead read other books like the Gospel of Thomas. And so it was kind of like this. At the council, Emperor Constantine wanted certain books for political motivation, so he got the books that we now know as the New Testament together, and he kicked out other books. Other books that you should consider as important or more important than the ones that you've known all of your life as the New Testament, as the Gospels that tell us about the life of Jesus. That's kind of the way the argument is made. That you should read them books like the Gospel of Thomas, even though they are known by scholars to have been produced centuries later by people that had nothing to do with Jesus in his lifetime. Now, I know that, but I wonder if you know that. But here's the thing that's interesting. The collection that we know as the New Testament was recognized and existed well before the Council of Nicaea. 
One of my favorite places that you see it crop up is early as 250 AD, 100 years before that time period and 100 years before Constantine could have messed around with it for any political motivations. A preacher named Origen was already referencing the New Testament as this complete, in its complete makeup. So actually the earliest Christians recognized the books of the New Testament as special very early. They began using them as authoritative teaching from the time of the apostles. So much so that well before the 4th century, Origen in 250 AD describes the books of the New Testament in pretty splendid detail. I won't read his whole quote, but you can find it in his Homilies on Joshua 7.1. Homilies on Joshua 7.1. He mentions the four Gospels, the book of Acts, 14 letters of Paul, the two epistles of Peter, the epistles of John, the writings of James and Jude, and Revelation ultimately showing that we have everything that we need preserved for us to know the gospel of Jesus, to know the events about his life, to trust their accuracy about his claims and his teachings. We have everything that we need to to really trust and understand it well in line with what he sent out his apostles to teach with authority about the hope of salvation through Christ. We have it all. We have what we need. We have what was authorized. We have what the early church recognized. You can be confident about your New Testament. Which brings me to my last and final item on my greatest hits mixtape. It's the skeleton of Yehohanan. The skeleton of Yehohanan. And it supported the accuracy of the central events of the crucifixion and burial. Back in 1968, there was excavated a skeleton of a crucified male with nail piercings in the hands and the feet and the ankles broken below the knee, the way crucifixion is described in the Gospels. Now, it wasn't Jesus. It's Yehohanan. And um, it, it, prior to the discovery, skeptics claimed that Romans only tied hands to crosses. They didn't, they didn't hammer them through like the Gospels talk about. That they tied hands to the Gospels and... You know, they would, they would talk about the fact that burials were made in mass graves and therefore Jesus would have never been buried in a tomb, probably thrown in a mass grave. That's why there's no body to be found and they were consumed by animals. But when this particular discovery was made, what, what became obvious was here in this ossuary, preserved bone box for an honorable burial were the bones of this man who had been crucified the way the New Testament described Jesus' crucifixion. And he hadn't been thrown in a mass grave, he had been kept and allowed an honorable burial in a place where eventually this ossuary or this bone box was found. Just the way Jesus probably would have been buried. Now I share those things with you because sometimes we are hit with an onslaught of skepticism. And many of you have probably never been exposed to even this small sample size of what I would call corroborating details, corroborating ideas about the accuracy of the Bible historically. There is much more, and you should be confident that there's good reason for trusting the Bible to give us the basic things that went on historically. But more important than this sort of external corroboration and consistency is the internal power and message which is really well highlighted here then in the passage that we read from 2 Peter. Because of all the things that I've said so far, I think we should pay more attention then to what Peter writes in his section of the scriptures about the rest of the Bible. And this is what he points us to as the answer. So now we move from thinking externally to looking internally and we see a couple things from Peter. 
here. And I just want to mention three of them. Peter's case looks a little bit like this. Number one, Peter wants us to know, he wants you to know that the scriptures present themselves as eyewitness records. The scriptures present themselves as eyewitness records. We can't make them into what we want them to be. Good fairy tales or legends or something like Aesop's fables because they don't present themselves that way. And Peter makes sure we don't forget that. The scriptures are a witness of the record of God's divine intervention in the world for our salvation. His intervention through Jesus Christ. Look what Peter says in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He wants you to know that Jesus Christ came in power in history and that he himself and the other apostles are eyewitnesses to that fact. It's important that we know that. Peter, who writes these words here, is compelling you to give weight to his testimony and the testimony of the other apostles and of the gospels about who Jesus is, what he did, and what it means for your life. Testimony which certainly included the gospel of Mark where much of Peter's recollections about the life of Jesus are recorded there by one of his assistants, Mark. 2 Peter chapter 1, 6 16 through 18 helps us see how important it is to see the scriptures as eyewitness testimony. He goes on to say that at, at, when Jesus is transfigured on the mountain like we read in the gospels, that he even heard the voice of God affirming Jesus, that this wasn't just something that he heard about, but that his ears could bear witness to. But Peter's not alone in talking about Jesus that way. Luke chapter 1, Luke tells us, uh, Luke Chapter 1, 1 through 4 tells us that Luke set out to provide an orderly account from witnesses of the life of Jesus. 1 John, the Apostle John, goes to great lengths to describe the reality of John's witness interaction with the life of Jesus. The Jesus he preaches in the first verse, verse, verses he says is the one he has seen, the one he has touched, the one he has heard the voice of, and he is proclaiming him to us for salvation. 1 Corinthians 15, written by the Apostle Paul, the earliest record of the resurrection boasts that at the time of its writing, 500 people still are alive to corroborate seeing the resurrected Jesus during one of his appearances. And why does all that matter? Anyone who reads the Bible honestly knows right away we are dealing with writers and witnesses who are describing the events in a way that is meant to convey the amazing reality historicity of Jesus coming, of his life, of his teaching, of his death, and of his resurrection. They aren't just putting together a good story from some ideas, but they're witnessing to the reality of God's entrance in the world for our salvation through Jesus Christ. So we see that Peter is making sure that we see the scriptures as an eyewitness record of God's activity. But the second thing Peter wants us to see is that the scriptures produce in themselves a fulfilled record. They don't just tell us about history, but they also tell us about the meaning of history. That God, before he did the things that we see in Christ, began to tell us what they would mean so that we could understand them when they came. Here Peter is arguing in these verses that we have something greater than the Old Testament prophets. It's kind of amazing. 
Because the Old Testament prophets, through the power of the Holy Spirit, spoke on behalf of God with confidence that they had heard the voice of God, that they understood the voice of God, and they could put it forward. And so they proclaimed what they said, saying, thus saith the Lord. But Peter says, we have something better. Something greater. If you look at it here, look at verse 18. Look at verse 19. We have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. Now, what is he saying there when he says we have this sure prophetic word, that it's more sure? What he's saying is they had confidence when they spoke, thus saith the Lord, prophetically looking forward to who Jesus was and what his life and death would mean. They had confidence that it was from the Lord. They spoke it as a prophetic word. What Peter says is now we have witnessed that reality. We're eyewitnesses of Jesus' work, and we are looking back, seeing it, proclaiming what it means for you and for me and for the hope of salvation and forgiveness of sins we've got something greater it's gone from promise to performance it's been done for us and now we look back and see the surety of this promise fulfilled it's important the prophets had their message confirmed by the promise of God we have ours through the person of God's son who is the ultimate fulfillment of the promises that they saw I only have one t time for one example prophetically, but it's the most important one that I could share with you. In the time around 500 BC or so, roughly, uh, in that time period, Isaiah the prophet described how God would accomplish his salvation for us. God had revealed, looking forward, how God would fulfill his promises of forgiving sins and redeeming a people for himself, of creating a people for his name. How he would accomplish his salvation for us from sin through the atoning sacrifice of his anointed servant. 500 years before Jesus. Isaiah 53 captures the climax of this promise. And when you read portions of Isaiah 53, it so clearly reads like it was written after the life of Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the promise. It's striking. For example, I'm not going to read all of it, but Isaiah 53, 3-6, through 6, written 500 or so years before Jesus says this. He was despised and rejected by men. As he looks out and sees this unfolding, he says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and he has carried our sorrows, talking about his deep identification with the woes of our lives. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We misunderstood what was happening to him at the cross. But he was pierced for our transgressions, verse 5. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or the correction that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That's a description of the cross of Jesus. Of what Jesus accomplished at the cross as he's pierced in a Roman crucifixion that could hardly have been anticipated. And the reason for it, for our sin, they were laid upon him. He bore our griefs. He's wearing our sin to the cross. His wounds heal us. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It goes on to allude to his burial in a rich man's tomb. The prolonging of his days after death. 
the result of a spiritual offspring of a new spiritual family springing forth because of his faithfulness and the promise that sinners would be made righteous through Jesus. Before Jesus, the natural question would have been, what does all that mean? (laughs) The natural question, reading Isaiah 53, before Jesus comes, would have been, what is this about? How will God do this? What is this pointing to? But now we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. We see it on this side because of what Jesus has done. This is exactly what Jesus has accomplished for you and for me through his death and resurrection. And here, Peter doesn't want you to miss it, and neither do I. That God had been planning to provide a salvation from sin for you. If you will turn from your sin to Christ in faith. If you will believe right now in this moment, in this time, that God has chosen to lay your sins on Jesus and punish your sins so that you could be forgiven, you could be cleansed, and you could be brought into relationship with God. That, un- that there was a time, even now maybe in your life, where like sheep you had strayed from God, but through Christ He wants to bring you back into relationship, forgiven and a part of His family. And there's nothing you can do by your works. There's nothing you can do to atone because Jesus has atoned for you. He was pierced for your transgression. This is the good news fully confirmed in Jesus. It's the good news we celebrate and it's the only hope of salvation before God for those who have sinned against Him. You know, today we issue that welcome and every week we issue the welcome that is there in Isaiah 53 pointed to now fully conformed in Jesus, confirmed in Jesus in We invite you to respond if you have never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, human beings, you know, I I can understand some of the skepticism about the Bible, right? Because we know there are human authors that penned the books of the Bible, 66 books, many authors, just in the New Testament alone, uh, multiple authors writing from different, uh, different times and different places. And human beings are known for error, aren't they? It kind of begs the question that so many people ask is, how could we ever believe the scriptures are true if human beings are so fallible? Well, it's interesting that even here, Peter, in the first century, addresses that concern and shows us that the scriptures provide through the Holy Spirit a divine record. If you want to understand the scriptures, you realize that they have all the form of human language and writing in time and place, but they also have the superintending work of the Holy Spirit, the work of God ensuring that a record is kept to be proclaimed, available for us to know all that he has accomplished in history for our salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to how Peter says it. He says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, so he's looking at Scripture, he's like, how, how does Scripture work? Well, Scripture, doesn't, it doesn't come from someone's own interpretation, So it wasn't just that people started thinking about God, started talking about God, and wrote down their thoughts. And so he says, prophetically, through the work of the Holy Spirit, Scripture didn't come together as people just thinking, what do we want to say about God? How are we going to describe this really difficult reality? What he says is something else happened because God initiated the plan and the purpose of inscripturating his word. And he says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So what he's saying is scripture in its prophetic work pointing us to Jesus and it's proclaiming the gospel to us. 
It wasn't produced by some people who wanted to say some things about God. But he says really clearly, but men spoke from God. How? I mean, so that's the question, right? Did they, did they just sort of dictate what God was saying? No, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, so we understand that part of the work of the Holy Spirit was to fill people in a way that he would guide their thoughts and guide their actions and guard, guide their writing and their descriptions. They were carried along. They're supported in ways that they would make sure that what was written was accurate and portrayed the God that was majestically ruling over creation and majestically sending his son for our salvation. The Holy Spirit. The the only reason we would wonder whether the, the word could be true and have a divine fingerprint is if we don't believe in God at all. But because God exists and because God has desired to communicate to us and bring us into relationship with him, he has provided through the Holy Spirit the scriptures for us by carrying along by his spirit people who would record the things that they saw and they heard. And Peter was one of them. Peter was one of them. God wanted his record of salvation recorded and preserved and truthful for all people to know the promises of salvation through Christ. And God can accomplish what he sets out to do. Because that not only do we trust the historical accuracy of the Bible, understand that it's an eyewitness testimony, see that there's fulfilled prophecy, we know that the purpose in the heart of it is so that we could be saved and rescued from our sins, so we could know God's plans and purposes for our lives, for your lives, and and wrapped up in the word of God are all the things that we need and need to know and to understand to build out our hearts and minds to be renewed after him so that we're not drawn away by the darkness of the world. We see the same idea of the Holy Spirit's work promised through Jesus. You know, Jesus, over and over, like my case for believing the Bible sounds something like this. Jesus, over and over, quotes the Old Testament as the Word of God. Also, and and he, he calls the Old Testament the Word of God. He refers to the Word of God when he quotes it. But Jesus also promised this work of the Holy Spirit that Peter references right here would guide his apostles to make sure that the events were recorded as the truth. John 14, 25 and 26 says this, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. Jesus, looking out at his disciples, says this, I've spoken these things while you're with me, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you. Now he's he's speaking particularly to these he's authorized to send out and speak on his behalf. The Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So he promises the Holy Spirit would carry them along to the truth. He says it in John 16, 12 through 14. He says, I still have many things to say to you. You can imagine Jesus standing there before his disciples after three years saying, we've got a lot to sort out, but it's not just going to happen because I'm going to keep you here. I'm headed to the cross. And he says in verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine, and he will declare it to you. You see, Jesus affirms the Old Testament, and he promises the Spirit's work to make sure that the apostles would give to us, to the church, to the future generations who would need a trustworthy word from God about his salvation, that they would get it right and be guided 
into all truth. And because of that, Peter says these words, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The scriptures are a divine record, therefore they're true, breathed out from the heart of God and profitable for us spiritually in every way above anything else we would ever read. They're marked with God's divine fingerprints through the work of the Holy Spirit in the midst of their writing and you can build your life on them. Ultimately, Peter tells us what we need to do. Because this is the case, our invitation in the shape of our church needs to respond to this word. Your life, our church, needs to gather near to God's word, to always stay close to God's word, to consider that God's word is the light that is shining in the darkness. Peter says it here in verse 19. You will do well to pay attention to it. So today, if you want to walk with the Lord... If you want to have light in the midst of a dark world, if you want to get through the confusion of what's true and what's not and what's right and what's wrong, if you want that, you would do well to pay attention to the trustworthy word of God as to a lamp shining in a dark place. How long? Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You see, it says something about the scriptures. You know, so we, we, want, we always want to just draw near and see everything immediately. But if you talk to someone who has studied the scriptures for years, who has walked with the Lord for, for years, you will find in them a confidence that has grown over time as they've wrestled with the word of God, as, they, as, they, as they've seen the things that it says about the human heart, as they've seen the things it says about the world. They, you will see a confidence that has grown, so much so that if you ask them, why should I trust the Bible, they'll have trouble boiling it down into a 35-minute sermon. And this is the confidence we give to you. You would do well to pay attention to God's word in a way that you pay attention to nothing else. Over and above everything in your life that you would draw near to God's word, you would study God's word, you would give it the attention that it deserves as God's divine message for your life, for your hope. Until that light begins to grow in you until the, the confusion begins to be weeded out and in place confidence and light and, and, and clarity comes forth in your life as you see that God's word remains forever. Well, every desire and word of human wisdom rises and falls and blows away like the grass, which springs up one day, is scorched by the heat and it's gone tomorrow. The word of God endures forever. Draw near to its light. Let it spring up in you. Draw near to it until it shines forth in you like a burning fire in a light that illumines everything in your life. And today, be the day where you pay close attention. Would you pray with me? Lord, we pray that you would make us people of your word. Lord, that we'd have confidence in it. That you would remove from us the skepticism and doubt that so often assails us. And that you would shine light into our hearts. You would help us to see in a special way by your Spirit the truthfulness of your Word, the truthfulness of what it says about who we are and what we need. Lord, I pray for anyone here who's never responded to the promise of the Gospel that we read about today in Isaiah 53 that they can be saved through faith and what Jesus accomplished on the cross paying for their sins.
that today, right now in their seat, they would respond to you. In the quietness of this moment, they would call on you for salvation, repent of their sin, they would trust themselves to Jesus. Lord, I pray for this church and the people here. God, would you make us confident in your word? In our daily lives, when we're tempted to think that we know better above your instruction, Lord, that we would cling to your word like a light in the darkness. Lord, would you make us a people who are willing to hear your word and obey it, to respond and do it. Because of that, grow in our ability to see its light and experience it. But until our lives are overflowing with the light of the good news of Jesus. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.